Well, for some reason in the past few months, I keep getting drawn back to Galatians 6. Um, I taught from that passage about bearing one another's burdens and then how in the end we each bear our own load. And then I guess we're just going to continue on with verses 6 through 10 today. Um, I kind of got stuck there in Galatians 6 for a bit. Um, uh, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 and read through verse 10. We'll have some of the context we've already studied previously there in mind as we approach verse 6. Beginning in verse 1, our departed brother Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. For he who... Excuse me, I turned the page too soon. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, that will he also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. Let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's take a moment to pray and ask for the filling of the Spirit. Holy Father, uh, I come in, in prayer on behalf of every believer here today, asking that you would Well, forgive us of our sins, Lord, anew. They are many, they are great, they are unworthy of you. And we we ask that you will just cleanse us anew and fill us with your spirit, we pray, that we might understand what it is that you wish to say to us through this text today. Because uh, we're here to hear from you, from your word. Help, Help us all, Lord, myself and everyone here, to be good hearers of your word to grasp what it is you you wish to impart to our hearts today through your word. I pray that you'll help us to leave here today better able to magnify Christ, more like him, more encouraged by your love, convicted where we need to be convicted, but restored and ready to continue the battle that's coming this week. We'll give you all the glory for anything good in us and anything that comes from this because we know all the glory is due to you and you alone. We pray all these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'd like you to consider the following illustration as we think about what Paul is saying in the text today. This comes from a past edition of Today in the Word back in 1997. Here's what it says. 
Harvesting was a far more difficult task before Cyrus McCormick invented the mechanical reaper. Perhaps a few of our farmers remember that. Even laboring long hours, farmhands used sickles and could harvest no more than one acre per day per person. When McCormick redesigned his father's defective prototype, presented the world with the first mechanical reaper, he revolutionized farming worldwide. The new machines could harvest more in one hour than one worker could do in a whole day. One fact remained the same, however, whether with sickles or McCormick's invention, Farmers could only reap what they had sowed. And I think with this we have introduced the theme of today's passage, which focuses on sowing and reaping. You could only reap what you sow. I think Paul would agree with that. It's a truism in the physical world, but as we'll see, it's also true of the spiritual world. But before Paul lays out the principle of sowing and reaping, he first speaks of the importance of sharing in all good things with those who teach. And this might be on his mind because of what he's just talked about, um, the need to restore a fallen brother. Often it's going to be teachers who are going to be involved in that or encouraging people to do it as they teach the word. But he says in verse 6, let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches I think this verse serves a dual purpose and and provides a transition here from one theme to another. It provides an example of bearing one another's burdens, actually. One way we could do it, we saw, Paul focused in on a particular principle of confronting sin in a brother and bearing a burden that way, but we saw that the principle was broader than that, of love for your neighbor, and that you could bear one another's burdens in other ways as well. And so I think that one of the ways you can help bear a brother's burdens is to share in all good things with those who teach. At any rate, that was the dominant theme, bearing one another's burdens, of verses 1 through 5. But this also provides a good example of sowing to the Spirit, a theme which Paul is going to take up in verse 7. So it's a, a kind of a transitional verse in that way. It's another way you can bear another person's burdens, but it also brings in the concept of sowing and reaping in a particular way that we'll see. Now, the focus here is clearly upon the relationship of the members of the body with those who teach them the word of God. And Paul uses the present tense of this verb koinoneo. The noun is koinonia. We're all familiar with that. It means to fellowship. And he uses the present tense of this verb when he commands one who is taught to share in all good things with the one who teaches. And so he's stressing the ongoing duty of those who are taught to those who teach them. Uh, Paul's assumption here is that as long as there are people teaching, uh, the people who are teaching them are going to be sharing in all good things with them as they teach. That's the assumption here. But what precisely does Paul mean when he says to share in all good things? What does he mean by that? phrase, in all good things. Now, many commentators take this as a reference to financial provision for pastor teachers, Uh, but I don't think Paul's meaning should be restricted to that. I think it can include that, but I don't think we should restrict it to that. To be sure, sharing in all good things would include financial support, 
And such an idea can certainly be found elsewhere in the teaching of both Christ and Paul. Uh, For example, when sending out the 70 missionaries during his earthly ministry, our Lord Jesus um, gave them instructions concerning pay for their ministry. He says this in Luke 10, 7, And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer, the laborer, excuse me, is worthy of his wages and do not go from house to house. Um, why is it that you're going to accept this hospitality? Well, because the laborer is worthy of his wages. You shouldn't think you don't deserve it from that standpoint. And when writing to the Corinthians about the same issue, uh, Paul clearly had this teaching of Jesus in his mind when he said in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 11 through 14, If we have sown, and there's the sowing and reaping idea again, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Now, we have to remember at Corinth, um, they had no problem with giving financial aid or help. (laughs) They had no problem with that, but Paul had chosen not to take pay while he was in Corinth. And... He had his reasons for that. We know he took pay from other churches, that he wasn't against pastors being paid, and that he himself was paid from other churches. Uh, Philippi was a church that helped uh, financially support Paul, for example. So he wasn't against it in principle. He did practice this at times, but there were other times where he chose to just work uh, as a tent maker. That was his trade that he had had before, and provide for himself because for some reason in certain areas he just didn't want to be beholden to those people. And that seemed to be the case in Corinth. So even though he had the right to do this, he decided to forego that at times because he, for some gospel purpose he had in mind, that he thought it was a good idea to do that. And that's what was going on here. They had no problem with paying other people, uh, and Paul is reminding them of the fact that he hadn't taken pay from them, but he could have. And so he says... If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. He was concerned that in some way his taking pay for them might have hindered the gospel of Christ. He doesn't say why he was concerned about that. Something about Corinth. He just didn't want to do it there. And so he says, do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple. Those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar. He's using the Old Testament example of the priests who made their living in their service. And he's saying that in principle we're doing the same thing. Even so, he says, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. I think he probably has in mind what we heard in Luke ten seven there. Now, when Paul later addressed the issue of pay for elders in his first epistle to Timothy, he again reflected on Jesus' teaching on the subject. And here in 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18, he says this, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. That's from Deuteronomy 25, 4. And Paul's seeing there a principle that applies in fact, he, he cited that text also to the Corinthians, but he's, he's, he's citing a principle that applies here. If even an ox is allowed to eat the grain, when he tries out the grain, right, and sort of get paid, paid for what he's doing, right, uh, surely people 
should be paid. Aren't we more important than oxen? Right? That's the idea, a lesser to the greater kind of argument that he has in mind, although he doesn't spell it out. It would be clear to them what he meant. And then he says, and the labor is, laborer is worthy of his wages. And that's a citation of Luke 10.7, of our, the words of our Lord Jesus. So again, I think, I think Paul's meaning here in Galatians 6.6 6 would include sharing in all good things with those who teach would include this idea of, of financial support for pastor teachers. Paul had nothing against that and taught it clearly in other passages. But I do not see how we can restrict this meaning here either to financial support or to the office of pastor teacher. He says in all good things. To those who teach, there were more teachers than those who were elders, right? Even if those would have been the primary teachers. And Paul might have had them primarily in mind, perhaps, when he said this, but I don't, I don't think we can restrict it to that. So, for example, to share in all good things with the one who teaches may well include encouragement of teachers, for example. Telling your teachers about what God is doing in your life as a result of their teaching is a good way to encourage them. Perhaps uh, you could give them a card to show your appreciation for their hard work sometime or something like that. Or maybe you can defend them when other people attack them for what they teach. That would be another way to support them. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I did, it was because of this very passage that I did it, uh, and this is an example from my own life that might help you get what I mean here as a broader application. Um, I, I came across this passage, this verse, as a, as a young believer, and I remembered as I thought about it that, that there have been those in the past who had taught me the truth of the gospel, despite my consistently having rejected what they said. I had many people sent into my life as a kid and, and then as a young man who shared the gospel with me, and I believed in a kind of works righteousness. I believed you had to earn salvation. I believed a heretical doctrine. And God would send people into my life to tell me the truth. And I hardly ever listened. Well, I didn't listen for a long time until I was in the United States Navy at the age of 20. And there were guys witnessing to me, very few Christians on the ship that I served on at the time. But they tried to witness to me. And eventually, you know, of course, the Lord broke through my heart and he saved me, saved me by his grace. So God, despite my heretical views, had constantly sent people in my life. And later then after having believed the truth of the gospel, and as I thought about this verse, I was convicted that I should contact those who had consistently and lovingly taught me the truth, that I should find a way to share in all good things with them. Because Paul said to. This is a command from the Lord. And so one example is that I found the address of an older lady. She was probably when I was about 11 or 12. She was probably at that time in her 60s. Um, her name was Rose Bailey. And I remember she had pulled me aside one Sunday morning as a child and explained that we cannot earn God's love, that we don't have to earn his love, 
because he saves us by grace on account of what Jesus did for us on the cross. So here was this woman in this heretical church teaching, teaching work salvation who believed the truth and was pulling children like me aside and sharing it with them. And it stuck with me. When the Lord saved me, this, I remember her. I remember what she said. In fact, when he saved me, I remembered looking back over my life all the times that God had had someone share the gospel with me, the truth of the gospel, and I had rejected it. And I saw how God was tr- trying to win me to himself, and I was resisting. And I gave, you know, of course, I gave up and realized that he, w- he was seeking me in his love for a long time, and, and that helped me believe he does love me. He, look what he's been doing. He's been sending people in my life to tell me he loved me, and I wasn't listening. And so it just, I was flooded with this realization when I came to Christ that of how much God had loved me in Christ and how, much, how he had pursued me since I was a child with his love. And one of the people he used was this woman named Rose Bailey. I don't remember anything else about her. I remember her name. I'm glad I could look it up. So what I did is I wrote a letter. I wrote a rather lengthy letter, as I recall, to her, explaining about how God had saved me and how she had played a role in it. Because what she said, it always stuck with me. I couldn't seem to shake it off. And I was then pleasantly surprised to find out that she was still alive. And when she wrote me back, uh, telling me how she had prayed for me after that, and how excited she was about what God had done in my life. And she also let me know that she'd shared my letter with everyone in her small church and that had been a great encouragement to them as well. Um, now, that's, that was my, my attempt to put this principle into practice as a, as a young believer, to share in all good things with those who teach. She had taught me the truth, however briefly, And I wanted to share in the good things that God had done in my life as a result of her being just one of those times. And by the way, this is a good lesson, I think, for all of us that, you know, I think uh, one one person wrote uh, that it takes an average of like seven point whatever times for people to hear the gospel before they receive the truth, right? For people who do accept Christ, that often they've had to hear, hear the gospel many times. So don't get discouraged uh, if you're like Rose Bailey and you, and you share the gospel with someone and they don't immediately respond. It could be that you're the third person in the chain of eight or ten people that are going to share the gospel with them before they come to faith. But you are an important person in that chain. So we never know what God's going to do. But one of the reasons I think it was good for me to share that with her is she could be encouraged then. That if there's one child that I got through to, maybe there are others too out there. (laughs) And she wouldn't lose heart, right? She wouldn't be encouraged to keep on sharing the gospel like she had been doing so faithfully. So that's just one example of how I think we can put this principle into practice in in a larger sense. In sharing in all good things with those who teach. And I can tell you, and I think my fellow elders can tell you, or anybody who teaches here in the church can tell you, if you teach children and in the church, for example, and their parents see a change in them, and they come and say, boy, I can't believe what my child is learning, you know, and 
They're so encouraged by that. So we often think of, and many commentators think of, financial remuneration here, but frankly, most of us would rather have the encouragement <laughs> in some respects, right? I can tell you, as one who's taught for many years, there's nothing more encouraging to me than to hear how, through my teaching, God has transformed someone's life. doesn't get any better than that. So give that some thought as, as you think about how to apply this. Now, obviously, you also apply it with the financial aid. to you, you provide me a living as a pastor, and you do a good job of that. And for that, I'm very, very grateful. But I'm also grateful that you're in an encouraging church. You, you guys do all this pretty well. <laughs> you know, I, I often feel like I'm preaching to the choir here, but, uh, but be encouraged. You're, you're doing a good job being, being a very good, encouraging church, but, but uh, think about everyone who teaches in the church and try to find ways to share in good things with them and encourage them. I think of this morning, uh, the good teaching we got um, from our brother Caleb really got us into the word, thinking about it in some ways I hadn't thought of before. Um, he often does that. Um, he is uniquely gifted to see things that I miss for some reason. Uh, and and uh, good job, brother. I always tell him good job because he always does a good job. Um, and I felt like I, I was encouraged, right, through that teaching. The encouragement this morning, of course, through that teaching was that we live in a, in a world very much like the world that the Apostle Paul was in, and people are going to hate our faith now like they hated our the Christian faith then, and that Paul is an example to us not to, not to lose heart, but to you know, keep trusting the Lord. Um, and so I needed that this morning. Um, at any rate, one of the most encouraging things you can ever do is just let teachers know how God is using their teaching in your life. And, th- and in this way, you can help bear their burden and the burden of you know, anyone who teaches in the congregation. But in this way, you can also sow to the Spirit, as Paul indicates in the next two verses. For example, he says in Galatians 6, 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, that he will also reap. Now here Paul is warning those who might not want to help support the ministry of the word that they are simply deceiving themselves and mocking God if they fail to realize that they will reap what they sow. That's why he's saying this. And uh, if if he has primarily in mind pastor teachers, it makes me wonder how many faithful pastor teachers have been underappreciated and perhaps many of them underpaid as well. Uh, by congregations who are deceived into thinking that their selfishness will not come back to bite them in the end. Of course, I'm I'm thinking of faithful pastor teachers. We all know that there are unfaithful teachers out there who are paid way more than any pastor ever ought to be paid. Right? There's something really wrong with an uber-wealthy preacher. I don't think our Lord Jesus would recognize such a person. I can tell you, someone like the Apostle Paul wouldn't. He would think that that person is uh, greedy, and he would be right. So I'm not advocating that. 
I'm not advocating in any way fleecing the sheep to get wealthy. Paul speaks against that repeatedly. Um, but, but there are also many cases in which there are faithful pastor teachers that are actually abused, underappreciated, and perhaps even underpaid by congregations who think that somehow it won't come back to bite them in the end. They don't even realize that, realize that they're making a mockery of God's word. Paul said, be not deceived. God is not mocked. If you think you will not sow what you reap, you're mocking God. That's what Paul's saying. And what's one of the ways that you're mocking him when you fail to share in all good things with those who teach? Well, in the end, it's God's word you're not appreciating. It's God himself speaking through his word that you're not appreciating. I know you're teaching me God's word. God's word doesn't really matter to me. And therefore, your teaching of it doesn't matter to me. So you think you might under, you're not being appreciative of the teacher, but it's really God and his word that you're not appreciating. Now, again... I'm glad I don't find that problem here at Emmanuel. <laughs> uh, I don't find people now. There used to be some people many years ago like that here. There have been people like that at Emmanuel for a long, long time, and I praise the Lord for that. We have good hearers of the word here at Emmanuel, and I'm grateful and privileged to be a part of a congregation like this. But we all know that there are plenty of congregations out there, right, who mock God in this way. I have a friend who is in Connecticut and it was one of these situations where they don't purge the roles of their church and so they have people on the rolls and family members of people on the rolls going back many decades who are still considered members of the church and are on the membership rolls even though they never come to church and these people try to throw him out of the church and get him voted out so they contacted all their unbelieving family members whose names were on the books there on the rolls of the church to come to a big meeting to vote him out. And thankfully, they failed by the grace of God. And he's still there, and most of those people are gone because they, they failed in their coup attempt, so to speak. But one of the things they said to him that they, they didn't like is he preached the Bible on Sunday morning. That's fine for a Bible study, but that's not what you should do in church on Sunday morning, they said. They actually said that to him, a group of people. I guess they've been used to preachers that maybe read a verse and that would be their springboard to talk about whatever they wanted to talk about in their rah-rah cheerleader message that they would give, but they never really got into the word. And sometimes when you do that, people you know, get convicted of their sins and stuff like that. And these people didn't like that. you know. And they actually said that to him. We don't like you teaching the Bible on Sunday morning. And they wanted to get rid of him. They didn't want to pay him. They certainly weren't encouraging him. They were mocking God, not him. They were deceived. Apparently, such a terrible state of affairs was present in the Galatian churches due to the influence of false teachers among them. Remember, Paul wrote the epistle to the Galatians because there were these Judaizers, we often call them, who were coming through and saying, basically, you had to be saved by works, you had to earn your salvation. You had to 
become a Jew first to be a Christian, really. And men had to be circumcised and so forth. And Paul was saying that's a false gospel. And so they were causing all kinds of problems in the churches. And you can imagine how discouraged their true teachers were as they began to lose the support of their congregations there. Um, But Paul wants them to remember the important principle of reaping and sowing so that they will be convicted of their error and repent. He further describes this principle in the next verse, in verse 8, where he says, For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. I think uh, Ronald Fung was correct when he said, quote, Paul here seems to regard the whole of a man's earthly life as a period of sowing with harvest awaiting that person on the last day. The eschatological yield is determined by the present sowing. I think he's on the right track there. I think that that's what Paul has in mind. Now, this is not to say that we may not reap from our sowing to some extent in this life, but rather that we will not ultimately reap reap the final reward until the day of the future judgment. William Hendrickson gets it right, I think, when he writes in his commentary that, quoting him now, Sowing to the flesh means to allow the old nature to have its way. That's what Paul says, remember, sowing to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. So also, he writes, sowing to the spirit means to allow the Holy Spirit to have his way. The one who does the latter is walking by the spirit. And we saw that in our previous study in chapter 5, verse 16, for example. And that person is being led by the spirit, as we saw in chapter 5, verse 18. What happens to these contrasted representative individuals already in this life, but especially in and after the resurrection at the last day, he who has been sowing to please his flesh will from the harvest field of the flesh reap destruction and decay. On the other hand, he who has been sowing to please the spirit will from the harvest field of the spirit reap everlasting life. However, I don't want us to get the wrong idea here. I don't want us to think that Paul intends to say that somehow we earn everlasting life as a result of how we sow in this life. That's not what Paul is saying. Remember, the whole letter here, the whole point of this letter is to write against the false idea that we somehow earn salvation. Paul's not saying that here. It would deny, if he was saying that, everything he's taught in the epistle about how we're justified by grace through faith alone, apart from our own efforts. Remember that although we're saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. Although we're saved by faith alone, saving faith is never alone. True saving faith always produces good works in the life of the true believer. True saving faith, faith wrought by the Spirit in our hearts, sows to the Spirit rather than to the flesh. And such faith assures us of our heavenly reward. Such faith never gives up either. As Paul says in verse 9, And let us not grow weary while doing good. For our due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Now, this is because, why does he have to say this, right? This is because we often don't see the rewards in this life of sowing to the Spirit. Now, that 
woman Rose Bailey I told you about before, she got to see some of the rewards of sowing to the Spirit in my life. But maybe she never, if I never wrote that letter to her, she never heard anything. Maybe there were hundreds or thousands of kids like me, but she never knew what happened to them. What would be the temptation there? To lose heart. To give up. Right? Which is one of the reasons it was so good. I shared in all good things with her, right? To to encourage her. But what Paul is saying, we can't lose heart. Even if in this life it looks like we're not reaping what we hope to reap when sowing to the Spirit, it will happen. So we shouldn't become discouraged because in due season we shall reap. As Leon Morris has aptly noted in his treatment of this verse, it is easy for the servants of God to become discouraged. The opposition they meet is so constant, and the good they are trying to do is so hard to accomplish. Isn't that the truth? So the sowing of the Spirit here, or sowing to the Spirit, means doing good. And it means not growing weary in doing good. But Paul does not mean to indicate that we'll never get tired, right, in our service to the Lord, does he? I think he's talking about the kind of weariness here that leads to losing heart or becoming discouraged. We're all going to get tired. But the weariness Paul is talking about is when we get so weary, we become discouraged and we lose heart, we feel like giving up. Paul wants us to work hard in the ministry to the point we get tired, right? He doesn't want us to grow weary spiritually and lose heart. He, he wants us to keep working hard at doing good and not giving up. If we serve the Lord in such a way that we keep our eye on the goal, there is a reward coming to us. Everlasting life <laughs> awaits us in heaven, Right? If we keep our eye on the goal with a faith that doesn't give up on his purposes and never quits believing that he can and will use our efforts even if we don't see it in this life, then we can be assured that we will reap the everlasting life that he's promised. We just got to keep trusting him and not our circumstances. Because remember the Galatians, they were very discouraged probably, the true believers there. It looked like the church was falling apart. It looked like the devil was winning. Probably to most of them. Paul's saying, don't don't lose heart. Regardless of what all these heretics are doing, you do the right thing. God's promises are true. Whether they know it or not, you know it, right? So, as I see it, Paul's not making here our perseverance the basis for our salvation. But he is indicating that our perseverance is connected with an assurance of salvation, perhaps. And such assurance of God's promise of everlasting life frees us up to serve God at every opportunity, as Paul says that we must do in the final verse here in verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. No wonder Paul has admonished us about the temptation to grow weary and discouraged in doing good because he wants us to take 
advantage of every opportunity to do good to every person that we can. That's, that's a tall order. It's easy to grow weary with, with a, right, a job like that ahead of us. I think Mark DeHaan offers a pretty helpful illustration of what perhaps our mindset should be. He wrote this. Uh, <clears throat> this is, he wrote this back in 2000. He wrote, Sev- several years ago, an article appeared in Time magazine about a doctor who lived through the terrible bombing of Hiroshima. When the blast occurred, Dr. Fumio Shigeto, if I'm saying it correct, was waiting for a streetcar only a mile away, but he was sheltered by the corner of a concrete building. Within seconds after the explosion, his ears were filled with the screams of victims all around him. Not knowing what had happened, he stood there for a moment bewildered, one doctor wondering how he could ever handle this mountain of patients. Then, still somewhat stunned, Dr. Shigeto knelt, opened his black bag, and began treating the person nearest to him. And then Dahan writes, when I look at the staggering needs of a dying world, I can easily become overwhelmed. God certainly doesn't expect me to frantically try to keep everyone in need helped, right? To help everyone in need. That is too big a burden. Galatians 6 says that we are to do good to all, but that doesn't mean that we have to reach everyone. We're to help anyone we can whenever we have the opportunity to do so. That's a tall enough order, isn't it? We often fail at that, even. When you're faced, he writes, with the distressing spiritual needs of a lost world, don't despair. All God asks is that you do what you can. But that, even that, is enough to grow weary at. To be tempted to grow weary at, isn't it? How many opportunities come our way to potentially help someone? And we don't. That's what we should have done. So we must do all the good we can for whomever we can. But Paul says this is especially true with regard to our fellow believers. So we have to prioritize. There, I may have an opportunity to help a lot of people at once, but some of them are my brothers in the Lord and some aren't. What should I do then? Paul tells me, prioritize the household of faith. Do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith, he says. They are spiritual family. That's what it means to be the household, the family of faith. So this means as we set our priorities, our commitment to the welfare of our brothers and sisters in Christ should always come first in our thinking. Although, of course, we we must never lose our commitment to the body of of Christ, but we shouldn't let our commitment to the body of Christ, of course, cause us to become so inwardly focused that we lose sight of our evangelistic responsibilities to the world around us, right? That's a danger, in prioritizing the household of faith that I think Paul would have us avoid because he still expected these people to be witnesses to a lost and dying world around them and to help the people around them as well. 
So this priority doesn't mean ignoring the, the help we should be offering to other people outside the body of Christ at all. But if it, if it comes down to it, and we have limited resources, we should be, I think, concerned about the household of faith first. While we, while we uh, maintain our obligation uh, to reach out to a lost and dying world, but a church that's doing good at taking care of the members of the congregation is often the church that's more equipped to help a lost and dying world. It's very hard when you have people in the body of Christ who are so overwhelmed with their own needs to be able to reach out to others, right? But if those needs are being met, then they're free to reach out to others. So in the end, it's the way we can best help others, I would argue. That's just my thoughts on that. But I'll conclude with the words of the 19th century Scottish commentator John Brown, uh, not, not the John Brown that a lot of people in America are, are familiar with, right? This is a Scottish guy. Uh, he's done a good job, I think, of driving home Paul's point here. He writes this, Every poor and distressed man has a claim on me for pity. And I, if I can afford it, for active exertion and pecuniary relief. I think that means giving them money if he has it. But a poor Christian has a far stronger claim on my feelings, my labors, and my property. He is my brother, equally interested as myself in the blood and love of the Redeemer. I expect to spend an eternity with him in heaven. He is the representative of my unseen Savior, and he considers everything done to his poor afflicted as done to himself. That's true. Our our Lord Jesus does think that way. Remember when Paul... uh, met the Lord, he was called Saul then, on the road to Damascus. Jesus didn't say, why are you persecuting the church? He said, why are you persecuting me? So John Brown is right when he he writes here that Jesus considers everything done to his poor afflicted as done to himself. The parable of the sheep and the ghosts teaches the same principle. Inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, talking about believers there, those are his brethren. If you look through the Gospels and see who Jesus calls his brother, it's believers. He said, inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. So John Brown is correct in this assumption. And then he says, for a Christian to be unkind to a Christian is not only wrong then, it is monstrous. Because it's being, unk- it's being unkind to who? Christ. And I may feel like my brother sometimes doesn't deserve my kindness, right? But does Jesus not deserve my kindness? I hope we'll all remember as we leave here today this simple fact. We will, we will reap what we sow. Now, we might, not that it's possible, It will happen. We will reap what we sow, whether it is through giving financially and materially to others in need or through providing emotional support and encouragement to the people around us who need it. As Paul says, we rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. 
We take part in the joys and sorrows of those around us. We are involved in their lives, right, in meaningful and encouraging ways. How we sow in this respect is a very good indicator of whether or not, I think in this context, we're true believers who can have assurance of the promise of everlasting life. It says something about whether whether or not we live in a way that mocks God. You see, there are a lot of people there in, in, in these Galatian churches who are beginning to believe the heresies, who still said they believed in God, still said that they trusted God, still said that they were Christians. All the while they were mocking God by not sowing to the Spirit, but instead sowing to the flesh. They weren't trusting God really for their salvation. They were trusting their own efforts, for example. So, my encouragement to you as I close is, if you're a believer and you've come to know Jesus by, self, by, by grace through faith, you've trusted in him alone as your Savior, then to you I say, that should show in the way you live. And uh, I say that to a group of people here who I know agree with me, so it's easy for me to say it, right? But you should be saying that to other Christians as well that you meet who may never hear that. And for those who have not come to know Jesus, maybe you were like me and you thought somehow you had to earn his love. Maybe you've been miserable like I was, until at 20 years old, the Lord saved me. I had a pretty bad life. I had a lot of bad things happen to me. And I didn't believe anybody could love me. It was hard for me to believe that God could love me. Especially without me having to do something to earn it. But here's the truth. You don't have to earn God's love. You couldn't if you tried. Anyway, he loves you as you are. Why were yet sinners Christ died for us? And he offers you the free gift of everlasting life, forgiveness for your sins. You got to quit trusting yourself. Got to trust in Jesus alone who died on the cross for you, rose from the dead that you might have everlasting life, which he offers you freely. And then he'll give you the gift of the Spirit who will enable you then to live a life of sowing to the Spirit, looking forward to the day when you'll have everlasting life in heaven with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I encourage you, as Rose Bailey encouraged me all those years ago. Stop trusting yourself and trust in him. He's the only one who can save you. Holy Father, I thank you so much for your word. It's my prayer that this uh, teaching has been helpful and, Lord, it's, that it's convicted us if we needed it, that it's encouraged us where we needed encouragement. I thank you that I get to be amongst uh, this household of faith. I'm so proud of this congregation. 
I so often boast of this church to other pastors and other people because there's such loving people here at Emmanuel. I feel I don't deserve to be a part of this church, let alone the pastor. I'm so thankful for these people, for their love for you. Please help us all, Lord, not to grow weary in doing good. I know we're probably all tempted sometimes. The task is so great. And doing good is so hard at times. Help us to encourage each other along the way, I pray. And thank you for all the wonderful encouragement I receive here that I don't deserve. Lord, for anyone who has not yet come to know you, we pray that today you would do for him or her what you have done for those of us who do know you. Grant them faith and repentance, we pray. We ask these things for your glory and for our good, and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As always, I thank you all for your kind attention.